reading comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and we're going to start at verse 1 and finish at verse 12. So I'll give you a minute to open that up now. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed as at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Thanks, Aubrey. Guys, I want you to know, yep, it's a full-on passage. We're going to get through it. It's going to be all right. Let's talk to God before we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, even when it's a complex one. Father God, we pray now against the distractions and the deception of the evil one. We pray that instead your Holy Spirit would make clear for us the, thing that you, the things that you would wish to reveal to us. We pray that he might remind us of what we have been taught, that we might delight at the times where he convicts us of sin, for we know that in him we are not condemned, but instead your Holy Spirit leads us to our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has reconciled us to you. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you and delight that we have this opportunity to hear from you, to take your word to heart, and to delight in all that you reveal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we start a new short series called Supernatural. I don't know exactly what you think of when you think of supernatural. For me, I go back because I'm of a given age. I'm all about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's where I go. Any Buffy fans out there? Yeah, amen. Very good. You know, probably those who are like 10 years younger than me, you're trying to work out if you're Team Edward or Team Jacob. I don't know, something lame like that. Um, who knows where you go when you go supernatural, but what we kind of do is we think of those things that are beyond our normal realm, things that are beyond uh, the normal creation that we know. And often when we think supernatural, we think of probably the Lord Voldemort kind of space of life. But we would be wise to acknowledge when we're thinking supernaturally, we are also thinking of the God of heaven who acts upon our his creation in our lives and sometimes blows our minds. And so I'm really grateful tonight to both Greg Bell and Rob Whiting who took one of my ideas and indeed a sketch of my whiteboard and made it come to life with the platform back here which we're going to use a little bit 
to help us understand some of the supernatural stuff that's going on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tonight. One of the things that the Bible delights in is the final supernatural act. The final supernatural act is the second coming or the return of the Lord Jesus. If you will imagine with me this purple line up here as like a heavenly timeline, you know, kind of the the beyond our realm stuff, and this blue line down the bottom here as our earthly time, which is problematic and has all kinds of issues. Here's the wonderful thing the Bible talks about. It talks about a time where King Jesus is going to return. And when King Jesus returns, what he will do is he will end the problematic existence that we know, bring the heavenly perfection. He will take heaven and earth, renew them, and bring them together in one eternal and forever wonderful and perfect existence. The Bible likes to think of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as the supernatural finish line. The supernatural finish line, that place where all things are put right. Every issue is settled. One of the endearing images in Scripture comes from one of the last chapters in Revelation where we're told that every tear will be wiped away. I want you to know this isn't like Jesus just coming like mum with cuddles and Kleenex. It's more than just wiping away the tears. Indeed, Jesus will take away the source of every tear. He'll remove every problem. He'll fix every trouble. Death will be defeated. There will be no more nights, no more boogeyman under your bed. None of that stuff, everything will be resolved. Relationships will be perfect. And you think, that sounds great. Well, I hope you think that sounds great because that's where God is taking us. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says to them, I want you to be mindful of this time. I don't want you to lose your head about it because there's some problematic teaching going around your church. Have a look at this. This is how the passage opens. Don't lose your head over when. Don't lose your head over the finish line. He says this, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, that is the new heaven, the earth, uh, the supernatural finish line and everything being perfect. We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed. Quite literally, the language is, don't become unstable in mind. As we like to say, don't lose your head. Don't become unsettled or alarmed by teaching, allegedly from us, whether by, that's by prophecy or by word of mouth or whatever, that somehow claims that the, Lord of, that the day of the Lord has already come. We don't know specifically what people were teaching to the Thessalonian church at that time, we don't know if they were saying, actually Jesus has come back. Which, by the by, is what today's Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They believe that Jesus did come back in the early 20th century, living on earth invisibly. I'm going to say that's an untruth. We don't know if that's what they've subscribed to, or maybe they are just being told, you know what, we have reached the finish line. In it, great, we're saved by Jesus, we're in the family, and we have come to the finish line. Everything should now be settled. Paul says to them, hey, I don't want you to lose your head about that when. I don't want you to lose your head about the finish line. I don't want you to become unsettled, and I sure don't want you to become alarmed. Let me tell you some stories about what that might look like. I was chatting with two pastors on separate occasions. 
I stood in a church one day with a retired clergyman. That's a dude like me, but really old. This was a guy who told me something that initially sounded great. He said, look, do you know, this is the church that sent me out as a young man, commissioned me, sent me to college, sent me to get ordained, sent me to a life of ministry. And after I'd done my years of ministry, I returned to my same home church. And he was delighted. He said, when I came back, I was greeted by the same people at the door. It was like coming home. The same people were here. It was like nothing had changed. And I felt great that I was back at home. On another occasion, I heard from another pastor. This guy's not yet retired, leading a wonderful church. He's doing all kinds of wonderful things under God. And I remember hearing him share with his church a vision he had for the church. He said, I dream of the day where our church might be the kind of church where when we pass the collection bag around, we actually can't use bags anymore. We need lockable boxes. Because if we didn't use lockable boxes, of course, people would steal the collection. Some people are like, what? Let me tell you, as I reflect on those two pastors and their stories, there is one that fills me with joy and one that brings a level of, well, sympathy but also despair. When I hear the story of a man who returns to his church and delights that nothing has changed, that so few people have been sent out and so few people have come in and so few new leaders have been raised up to influence the culture, I hear of someone who has settled in one position. And let me tell you something. When I hear of someone who is settled in one position, who thinks we've come to the finish line, the very nature of that settling tells me that they have become unsettled in what is meant to be a journey. We are meant to be on a journey with Jesus. And brothers and sisters, don't lose your head about the when. The journey we are on with Jesus is one where we await his return, we await the supernatural finish line, we await the time where all things are put right and it feels like home. This guy I spoke to, whilst it was warming and beautiful that he was able to come back and as a retired guy who'd done different things, I felt, oh dear, that must be comfortable and wonderful. But the mistake he made is the mistake that we can make and that is to put down roots where only tent pegs are appropriate. See, church isn't home. Church is at best your tent, your caravan. It is something we are journeying in together until we reach our eternal home with Jesus at his return. The other man I spoke to who scared the living daylights out of his wardens and maybe some others when he said, oh, I I want lockable boxes for the collection. His mind was one where he thought, what if our church was a space that so loved everybody, that so understood the journey, that we were forever encountering people who were either people of desperate need who felt that this was a good place to come or people who were struggling with some moral corruption where they would steal from the plate and and they were here to hear about Jesus or perhaps even there were people who had heard about Jesus early in their journey with Jesus, and as the Holy Spirit continues to conform them to the likeness of Jesus, had not yet overcome their problem of theft. 
He delighted in the chaos of a church that was journeying. Now, he wasn't saying, hey, everyone, I want you to start stealing from the collection. He wasn't saying, let's mess our church up. No, he worked for good order and things to come into alignment. He delighted that the problems would not go away until Jesus got back because this was a man who had not become unsettled. He understood that we are journeying with Jesus. Paul says, don't lose your head over the wind. Don't become unsettled and certainly, friends, don't become alarmed. It's easy to become alarmed, isn't it? This happens from time to time. We, we hear of things that happen in our world that might be... Uh, uncomfortable for Christians. Someone posts something on social media and the world goes nuts about it and the conversation gets tremendously complex and everyone jumps on each other for the wrong reason and we worry that we might not be able to freely speak anymore like it's our right and we become quite alarmed. See, here's the problem. You become alarmed when you think we're already there. When you think we've already come to the supernatural finish line and the second coming of Jesus, you think, well, this must be as good as it gets. And so let's get all our ducks in a row. Let's make the world perfect. Let's not have any bumps. And if there are bumps like people rejecting your faith, people challenging your faith, people being unfair about your faith, you freak out. And some of us might even be inclined to shout things like, but this is a Christian country. With respect to those who have said that, let me say this is not a Christian country and it never was. Indeed, there are others who have been around a little bit longer who say, Christian country, this is a dream time country, actually. And I would say with respect to them, no, it's not. That was a pervading view of many of the original Australians and then we had a time when many Australians were, were Christian of a thought and now we've moved on again. But the country was never a dreamtime country. It was never a Christian country. It was just a country. A country that journeys and awaits Christ to come back and put all things to be in a settled space where he reigns and is king over all things. Don't be alarmed when the government might make decisions that don't make being a Christian easy. That's kind of how it goes until Jesus. That was actually in the brochure that Jesus was handing out when he was on earth. He said, it's going to get tough. They hated me. They might give you some frowny faces as well. This same Paul who wrote this letter said to his apprentice, Timothy, all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. Because we're not there yet. Don't be alarmed when the world is messed up. Don't be alarmed when there's trouble and strife. We're not there yet. The best is yet to come. I want to take a pause for a moment because I've offered you a word of comment on the finish line and how you might look at church and how you might look at the world. But in my heart, I wanted to say something different to this congregation tonight that that I haven't said the rest of the day. I want to offer you a word about not just how you look at church or how you look at the world, but how you look at you. I think a wrestle that we have sometimes 
particularly as we're learning our identity, establishing our identity, whatever that might mean for you, what your political position is, what your sexual orientation is, uh, who your football team is, how you just kind of fit in the community, you sort of think, well, I better get this sorted out so I'm a good churchy like everybody else. Now, I know you won't articulate it like that, but I know it happens to people. I know it happens where we feel like, well, everyone else seems so settled like their Jesus has come. I should fit the mould. I should fit in. I should know my role. Can I say to you tonight, as you look at you, can I remind you, don't lose your head over the wind. Don't freak out. If you don't think, oh, I'm the perfect Christian yet, that is okay. That is okay. There's time to figure out you. There's time for God to do a work in you. There's time to get sorted. And you know what? In Christ, I don't even know if there's an urgency about it. You do what you've got to do. Follow Jesus and let him do the work in you. We're not there yet. I want to tell each and every person here tonight that this church, this church of Jesus Christ, has space, has time for you to figure out who God is shaping you to be under Jesus. There's time, there's space. Does that make sense? I hope that speaks to a heart that needed to hear that tonight because it would trouble me and hurt me to think that you thought you had to have all your ducks in a row together and sorted now. You don't. We're on a journey. And the key thing with the journey is, man, then you're lost. Keep going. Keep going to the finish line and don't get lost. But here's what Paul says. Don't lose your head just over the finish line and thinking it's come when it hasn't yet come. Keep going, keep going. The best is yet to come. Don't be unsettled or alarmed. But the other thing that he warns these guys of and he warns us is don't be deceived. If we don't want to lose our head over the when, we also don't want to be deceived by the who. And here's where you might say it gets juicy. You see, before we see Jesus and this wonderful finish line, Jesus is coming back. He is coming back and he will stand on the earth again and it's going to be amazing. Everything will be renewed. We will see that day. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Amen. That will happen. But before that happens, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be strife. There's going to be deception. And there's going to be things that will try to take your eye off the prize. And it kind of looks like this. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of Jesus, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that, over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, the natural reaction at this point is to go, I need to know who this dude is. I need to know what this rebellion looks like. I want to avoid this stuff. Can I tell you, for the last like 2,000 years, too many trees have been cut down over this issue. Too much ink has been spilled and too many people have sweated too hard over this issue. You know what tends to happen? Uh, every period of time, Christians and theologians will basically think of the worst person in their world, be they a political leader or some kind of religious leader who says stuff they shouldn't or just someone of massive evil and says, Ah, oh, that must be them. 
And we could easily do a roll call of who we think the person of lawlessness is. And, you know, people have done it for, for centuries and then they go, mm, maybe not, maybe it is, maybe it is. Not really sure. Not really sure. I'm not going to give you a name for the person of lawlessness tonight and I don't believe anybody can. When we read the scriptures, it's important to understand the kind of literature that is in front of us. The kind of writing, you know the difference between a comic book and a newspaper and and a maths textbook. They speak in different ways and they communicate different things and they communicate in different ways. What we are dealing with here, in my view, is something called apocalyptic literature. To explain that, let me take you back to my childhood. My dad, who is not the man of lawlessness, as far as I'm aware, used to have this phrase he would use sometimes, and he used to freak me out when I was a kid. He'd say, I'd hear him talking to my mum, and he'd be talking about going to his second job, or turning off the lights, or what have you, and he'd be talking about keeping the wolf from the door. Now, when you're four years old, Yeah, you feel me? And your dad's talking about keeping the wolf from the door? You're thinking, what has gone wrong in the suburb of Winston Hills, where I grew up, where the government and the people in charge are letting a wild animal roam the streets and And why does he want to get into our house? I was freaked out. Sometimes my dad would even elaborate on his apocalyptic image of the wolf at the door. He'd call it the man in the brown suit is at the door. And then I'm thinking, it's a werewolf. It's not even a normal wolf. Why is he an owl? It was terrifying. I think that was part of my dad's intention. He used language that was figurative, language that evoked, uh, that brought about an emotional response and a powerful response. I think he wanted us to get the point that you got to turn the lights off. They cost money. Let the hearer hear. you got to turn the lights off. They cost money. I'm a dad and I took an opportunity. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Al. you got to work hard to keep the wolf from... He wanted us, he wanted kids, mums, everyone in the household to feel something powerful about the importance of being frugal and using money appropriately, and so he spoke about the wolf from the door. I suspect this is what's happening in 2 Thessalonians. We hear about this great rebellion. I'm not 100% sure what it is, but it should make you feel uncomfortable. We're told about this, this lawless one who's coming, and he's going to take over temples and tell you he's gone, and you think, ugh. I wouldn't want to be deceived by him. And the feeling you get from that is exactly what you're meant to. It's not just about information. It's about a powerful feeling and evoking a response to the information. So what can we know about this lawless one? I built a little personal profile for him. Have a look with me at the personal profile. To start with, I am a huge fan of making sure that we have gender-inclusive language where appropriate in the Scriptures. Great news to all the evil women of history. The Bible is non-specific about the gender of the man of lawlessness. And so, great news, it could be a girl. 
from here on in, we'll refer to this as the person of lawlessness. The person of lawlessness has innumerable, innumerable, lots of aliases. Over time, the finger has been pointed at all kinds of people. Oh, look at that evil one. That must be the person of lawlessness. The person of lawlessness has a significant power. The person of lawlessness, verses 9 and 10 tell us, is a master deceiver. And the mastery of this deception is so wide and so tailor-made to different people. Sometimes this deception comes in the way of, gee, my life would make sense, I'd reach my finish line if only I had that thing. And it's a wonderful comfort that I pursue. And that's the manifestation, that's the distraction. There's the finish line. Um, With sympathy, I acknowledge that some encounter this deception in different ways in probably the more classic sense of supernatural activity. I'm grateful to God this has not been one of my experiences, but I suspect in a room of this size, someone has experienced, let's say, something that goes bump in the night in an unnatural way. Sometimes terror, trying to show that there is some significant power that you should become unsettled and lose your mind over or what have you might be the person of lawlessness's way. The person of lawlessness has an allegiance that is satanic. Now here is a master stroke in deception. The Bible tells us that the God of heaven sent his son in the form of a man and said, here is my Christ. Here is my son. When you see this man, you have seen me. Make him the object of your worship and there is your salvation. He is your temple. He is your one. And so what a master act of mimicry and deception that the Satan, the deceiver, would send his man, the person of lawlessness. The one who also would have the activity of opposition. Not that guy, me. Blasphemy, I am God. Idolatry, here I am, the one to be worshipped. I am the idol for you. What a masterstroke of deception. To even go with the sending the man envoy thing. That's, he's clever. He's clever. As clever as he is, notice his status. He's a loser. Verse 3 and verse 8 both tell us in no uncertain terms that this figure of lawlessness, whatever, whoever he may be, this one who is meant to evoke a feeling of, oh my goodness, I would not want to be deceived by that one, loses against the Lord Jesus who is truth. Who is truth. And so Paul warns, don't lose your head about the finish line. Don't be deceived by any kind of manifestation of the evil one that might come along. So how do you do it? Well, Paul has simple advice. He says, look, just stick to the plan. Stick to the plan. Let me show you how he says that. In light of all this stuff, Paul says to them, hey guys, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you all these things. And, you, and now you know what is holding him back. Who's him? Him is the man of lawlessness, the great deceiver. 
you know what's holding back the great deception? So that the great deception might be revealed or might come at the proper time. Okay, let's play in this a little bit. Paul says, remember, I've already equipped you with the stuff you need to keep your head, to run to the end. I've equipped you with the stuff you know, you need to know to not be deceived. We can't know 100% for certain. We don't have a list in Thessalonians where Paul says, and these are the things I said. But we have a whole lot of scripture in the Bible and know the kinds of things Paul says. And so we'll visit that in just a moment. Another place people have spent too much energy and time is going, okay, so what's the thing that's holding him back? Remember again, friends, this is apocalyptic language. You're meant to have a feeling of there is some powerful deceiver and there's some powerful force acting against him. The Bible talks about this numerous times. Sometimes the apocalyptic image is one of the archangel Michael, said to be like the biggest, toughest of the angels who leads God's armies. And, and there's, there's pictures of him in scripture uh, contesting against the devil in a number of different spaces. Again, that's not a literal competition. That's meant to make us feel something of, wow, there's a powerful force. God's got it. In other places of Scripture, we hear of a dragon who is bound, can't do anything, probably roar, and go, but he can't move until God lets him loose. A powerful force, a dangerous force, but God's got it. Again, in this feeling of, whoa, don't be deceived. What stops the deception having its full way? God's got it. How has God got it? God's got a plan. God's got a plan. And this, this is what Paul tells the Thessalonians to remember. He says, remember the things I taught you when I was with you. God has a timeline and a plan for how things work. And so let's spend a little bit of time learning God's plan. I told you before, this purple line up the top, we'll think of this as like heaven's storyline. Heaven's storyline begins back here somewhere, because you know what? It doesn't actually begin. It's eternal. And so it just was. But there came an event where God invented time. And at that time, the Bible says this thing called the beginning was invented. In the beginning, God started making stuff and an earthly timeline began. Now, i just got to warn you, this is not to scale. I tried, but it's not to scale. The earthly timeline continued. This is what we live, and there were problems. And there's separation between the heavenly line, the eternal heavenly line, and the earthly one. You can read in Paul's writing, Philippians chapter 2, for example, that Jesus Christ, in very nature God, he lives up there, emptied himself of his glory, and at Christmas time we celebrate that he took on flesh. Or as Paul writes to the church, uh, the Colossians, chapter 1, God was pleased for his fullness to dwell in him. You see, right here we have a supernatural miracle cluster, I'm going to call it, where heaven comes down. You sing about it sometimes. We didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. That's what we're talking about when we sing that. 
so much was God's supernatural intervention that he not only came down from heaven to earth, he engaged with the earth's most significant problem, sin and death. He stepped into that space. God wasn't coming just as a tourist. He was coming fully baptized into the human state. And so he took on sin and death at the cross. He came all the way down. Paul teaches, the Bible teaches that as part of God's plan, he was not defeated. Death could not hold him down. Another song says he is risen. The tomb is empty because he defeated that lowest of low points. Paul tells us in the scriptures that he didn't just rise that he might go on world tour. He rose from the grave, declared Christ eternal, and so God, again back to Philippians 2, exalted him to the highest place, and now he sits on a throne at the right hand of God. Why does he sit? Because his work is done. Heaven came down, dealt with earth's problems, beat earth's problems. God was so pleased, not just to come down, but to take Jesus, the God-man who has a body like you and I, took that body, that fleshly, earthly, blue-line dwelling piece of creation and seated it in the highest place of heaven. And this event brought about another event, an event that the Old Testament places like Joel 2 speak about, that God's Spirit would be poured out on all people. This is the event of Pentecost that Acts chapter 2 speaks of, a book co-authored by Paul. That God, these flames was the, the symbol of the day, that God poured out His Spirit on all the people. Can you see the supernatural activity here of heaven coming down, defeating all things, taking earth up, and then pouring out the everlasting Spirit of God to live and dwell in and among earthly creation? This is a supernatural act. This is God's plan. And God's plan continues that we would now be here. I'm so glad that uh, our musicians are working from this space because this is the space we dwell in. It's called the now but not yet. Where we now have full, absolute fellowship with God because of the activity of Jesus. But we're not there yet at the finish line. We live a double life of, of sorts where we are absolutely with God. We're absolutely part of his storyline, but you've still got to walk the earthly one. And so 2 Thessalonians 2 says that already the spirit of lawlessness is at work among us. Already there is fuzz. Already there is chaos. Already there is trouble. Already there is strife. And then, as this chapter comes to its back end, verses 8 to 10, we hear of this time that the man of lawlessness, the person of lawlessness, will be revealed. Some have taken this to believe, so this person will come and do really bad stuff to us. No, that's the feeling, but not the situation. What does it mean? It means... That before Christ returns, and when Christ returns, he comes as the judge of all humanity to bring about the perfect end. What we have here at this point 
is the final deception. The deception that was getting warmed up. When we come here as Jesus comes and blows this guy out, no trouble at all if you're a believer. At this point, we have the final deception. And tragic for our hearts, we hear that God will indeed give those who have failed to believe over to that final deception and they will be lost eternally. I should pause here. I should pause here because there's a danger that you might think I'm saying if you don't follow Jesus, it's over for you. I return you to my first point. Do not become unsettled. We're not there yet. I caution you that when Jesus returns and you have not come to him, there is a final deception and people will be lost. Other parts of the scripture describe this as the accuser being released who will stand and he will accuse and read out all your list of wrongs. There is a way to overcome the final deception. There is a way to overcome the final accusations of your life. And that is to turn and trust in the truth. The truth overcomes the deception and the cross and empty tomb overcomes the accusation. The only way we can prepare ourselves for this supreme supernatural finish line is to look back in time and to see the already activity of Jesus. The already work of God. The already supernatural thing that binds us together with the God of heaven forever. And so if you don't know Jesus yet, don't hear me saying to you tonight, oh, you stand condemned, it's over for you. Hear me saying to you, appealing to you, it's time for a change. If God calls you to look at his son, the saviour tonight, then don't put it off, put it on. Tonight's the night to no longer be deceived, to no longer walk a life where you come to an end point where the final deception is had, but instead to turn and trust in truth so that at the return of Jesus, at this wonderful time, be included in the new heaven and the new earth where every tear is wiped away and all things are made perfect. You should always test your interpretation of Scripture with Scripture. And what I've offered is an interpretation. A great way to check if I'm on the same wavelength with Paul right now would be to read on in Paul. And so let's wrap up with this. As our passage continues into the next few verses, 13 and 15, let me just check and see if this makes any sense at all. But we must always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. Because from the, say it with me, beginning... God has chosen, this is something he did before time. God has chosen you for salvation. Thank you. Salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this glorious gospel, this supernatural event. Why did he call you to this gospel? So that you might, looking forward, obtain obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, stand 
firm. Stick to the plan. Stay with the traditions you were taught. Do not lose your head about when. Do not be deceived about who. Instead, stand firm. Stick to the plan. Trust in the risen Jesus and know you are safe for the end. We can be sure of the end. If we hold to the truth delivered to us once for all, do not be deceived, do not be shaken, and trust in no other. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that in him is this superlative, supernatural activity that binds heaven and earth together so that all who believe in him might have certainty of the future. And Lord God, we pray that as we walk this time where we... We wrestle with the troubles of the earth we live on whilst carrying the hope of the heaven of which we are citizens. We pray that we might live led by your Holy Spirit with all confidence and anticipation for the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remind us, Father, that the best is yet to come. Remind us, Father, that the future is secured by a glorious past. And Father, we pray now that by your Holy Spirit, you would give all of us eyes to see and believe the truth of the risen Lord, that we may not be lost in a final deception, that we may not be found guilty in a final accusation, but know instead the justification, the not guilty verdict we received when we first came to trust Jesus will be very much ours at his return. That we might be counted among the number in a glorious time where heaven and earth are joined together under the perfect kingship of the one who loves us. And so, Father God, we pray that our faith might be in him and he alone. In his name we pray.